This story starts with a number. Well, actually a string of numbers. 6, 23, 89, 15, 26, 53. From the point of view of history, the major transition was June 23, 1989. At 3.26 in the afternoon and 53 seconds, you see, that string of numbers, it's a date and time string and it represents the exact moment in time that Australia first connected to the internet. Justin Zobel, who these days heads up computing and information systems at the University of Melbourne, was there when the switch was flicked. Apparently, the department gathered in the tea room to celebrate. Anyway, that first connection was made via... A permanent, always-on link from Melbourne to Hawaii. That link was turned on that moment, and for the first time... When an email was sent, it arrived immediately. It's kind of weird to think about now, knowing everything that the internet has become, that you can pinpoint the exact moment in time that Australia got online. One second earlier, June 23rd, 1989, at 3.26 and 52 seconds, no internet. And then, at 53 seconds... Internet. The connection to Hawaii was a stepping stone into the world. Hawaii was well connected into the US, and of course within the US the networks were very established that provided access into the whole world. I would actually describe it almost as the moment when Australia ceased to be an island. Like Justin, Sulet Dreyfus is in computing and information systems at the University of Melbourne. You know, we all take the internet for granted today, right? Most people did not understand what the implications were going to be. Now, that is partially because the very early users of the internet in Australia were a very small, narrow band of people. They were enthusiasts, backyard tinkerers, computer science researchers. And that stood in contrast in a uniquely Australian way to how the internet was being developed elsewhere around the world. While the internet was taking off, sponsored by government and defence in the US, and there were government networks in the UK, in Australia it was entirely a hobby of system administrators wanting to connect to each other between universities building this network because no one else wanted that internet. So I don't think most people understood it, but a small number of technologists understood it. And there were certainly members of the hacking community understood it. For me, one of the most potent illustrations of the power of the internet came very quickly after that June 23 first connection. Within months of Australia getting online, two teenagers living at home with their parents in suburban Melbourne hacked that connection and used it to infiltrate some of the most secure computer networks in the world. And at the top of their list, NASA. Hey, I'm Joel Werner. This is Sum of All Parts. And today, it's Phoenix and Electron. This is an NBC News special report. Good afternoon. At Cape Canaveral, they are go for launch of the space shuttle Atlantis. The shuttle and its five astronauts during the course of their five-day mission will deploy Galileo, an unmanned space vehicle that will fly to Jupiter. The launch of the Galileo space probe wasn't supposed to be controversial. Galileo is the most sophisticated and expensive unmanned spacecraft ever built 
costing one and a half billion dollars. The controversy came from the fact that Galileo was powered by two plutonium engines. This has prompted some anti-nuclear activists to try to get a court order to block uh, this afternoon's scheduled launch. This is October 1989, the last days of the Cold War and only a few years after the Challenger disaster where a space shuttle exploded in these skies, the skies above Cape Canaveral. So there was some tension, warranted or not, about launching what's essentially a nuclear reactor into space. Because of this, the launch is protested by anti-nuclear activists. A court order tried to keep the probe on the ground but was ultimately unsuccessful, and protesters set up camp outside the Kennedy Space Centre. All of which NASA could take in its stride. But one arm of the protest shook them to the core. Because this protest, it happened behind closed doors, in parts of NASA you need security clearance to access. It happened online. The scientist would come in in the morning and put down their cup of coffee and sit down and try and log in. And they would find that instead of all their scientific data or their normal work, there was a screen that would appear with some sort of very rough old ASCII sketching on it that said, your system has been wanked. Wank, in this instance, is an acronym for Weapons Against Nuclear Killers. This was part of the Galileo protests. The NASA network was invaded by one of the first worms, computer worms in the world, and in fact the first worm that had a a political message. And it took over a set of the terminals in the NASA network. These infected terminals were rendered useless. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The wankworm, as it became known, was on the move. So this worm was, you know, a self-propelling bit of software that would infect and hop from machine to machine, network to network, and would get out and basically spread by itself. So this was very alarming, and it started affecting first dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of machines. And the worms soon spread beyond NASA. You see, the NASA network was connected to the US Department of Energy, CERN in Switzerland, and the Riken Accelerator Facility in Japan. The wankworm had gone international. And all of this was going down as the most expensive spacecraft ever built sat on the launch pad, counting down to liftoff. Not the best time to have your computer network compromised. Let's go now to NASA and uh, listen to the voice of uh, launch control Lisa Malone as we follow this countdown, we have a go for main engine start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition and liftoff of Atlantis and the Galileo spacecraft bound for Jupiter. So there we have it, what appears to be a, a flawless launch of the space shuttle Atlantis. Nothing happened. For all the trouble the wankworm caused, ultimately it didn't affect the launch and Galileo shot off to Jupiter without issue. Eventually, NASA's computer technicians stopped the worm and turned their attention to figuring out where it had come from. And they started by looking for clues in its code. The worm had this reference in the code to the word oils, O-I-L-Z. Now, the Americans who were researching this had no idea what this was. They assumed that it meant that the worm was slippery. It could slither through all of these networks quickly and without 
friction or resistance. Also in the wankworm was a banner that had appeared in infected machines. And there was a quote at the bottom that said, you talk of times of peace for all and then prepare for war. And no one knew where this was from. You know, they thought, oh, it's some sanctimonious worm writer who's hacked this and sent it out there. They'd probably never heard a Midnight Oil song. So it was from a Midnight Oil song from a fairly obscure album called Species Diseases. But of course, that was the political message. And that is, in a sense, what made this worm so special and unique was not just that it could jump from network to network. It was that it contained a message, an idea it was trying to spread. But this obscure reference to one of Australia's most popular bands was lost on those investigating the wankworm. The French Secret Service had investigated where some of these connections were coming from because I think they were worried that the American investigators were going to pin this on them because some of the connections had gone through France. But they were able to trace connections back to Australia. At that point, whoever was responsible had emerged in a kind of hazy silhouette from the forest, but not clear enough to make out who it was, and then they slipped back among the gum trees. In spite of its isolation, by the late 1980s, Melbourne was something of a tech hub. RMIT and the University of Melbourne led pioneering computer science courses and also controlled the recently established internet connection. But this was more than academic. Something bigger was happening. I mean, the late 80s and early 90s in Melbourne was definitely a very special hub in the world. There are hundreds of companies around the world who spend millions of dollars every year trying to create that fairy dust that makes this special place and time, this magical thing, whatever it is. And yet here it was in suburban Melbourne with people who live in 1970s brick veneer houses like something out of Neighbours, yet somehow it's like a Venn diagram, you know, you draw these circles. And there was just enough curiosity, just enough technology access, you know, big borrowed or stolen, just enough advancement of the technology, just enough time. And all of those things came together and suddenly you got this nuclear fission reaction. And that's pretty special. Along kilometres of copper wire, stretched beneath the asphalt of Melbourne's suburban sprawl, a thriving underground tech scene was starting to take shape. This early underground scene was comprised of a real mix of people. 
at heart, there were people who were explorers, explorers on the frontier of technology, explorers on using computer networks to talk and communicate with people in other countries to learn information. Some of them were kind of classic Australian stirrers. A lot of them turned to semi-legal activities of breaking into university systems, telecom systems, not so much because they were criminals, but because they couldn't otherwise get access to this incredible technology that they knew existed. They'd do whatever they had to to get their hands on the latest technology. There was a real sense of DIY in this scene, and not because it was cool, but because it was necessary. They would go and buy all these components as cheaply as they could. They didn't come usually from wealthy backgrounds. At most, they would come from a middle-class background. A lot of them came from working-class backgrounds. Because they'd often bought the cheap version or pieces of it that hadn't been assembled, they had to learn how to assemble it themselves. And there is nothing like learning how to put something together yourself to actually both appreciate it, understand its power, and use it most optimally. And the most enterprising members of this scene wouldn't even restrict themselves to what they could buy. So they would go dumpster diving on the weekend. They would go to both private companies and telecom and they would go to the garbage dumps out the back and they would open them up and crawl inside and trawl around in the trash in order to find the manuals or bits of hardware that might have been discarded. These were absolute treasures. They were like gold. Throughout suburban Melbourne, evolving alongside a vibrant music and arts underground, counterculture had gone digital. But this world existed online. People interacted via primitive, text-only chat rooms called BBSs, or bulletin board systems. So you might have someone who was lucky enough to have a pretty powerful desktop machine and who had maybe even a couple of modems, maybe even three phone lines in. You could dial in to one of these numbers that they had set up at home. They would run this literally out of their bedrooms. Like at the end of their bed would be a table <laughs> with this computer and a set of modems hooked up. And then you would basically log on to leave messages for people with similar interests or friends, online communities. Sometimes you wouldn't leave messages, sometimes you'd online chat with them, text to text. And that was extraordinary. People didn't have that before. With this new world came new rules of engagement. One of the key things here is that no one was using the real name. So in this BBS community, you know, people were using handles, and that was a relatively new thing. I and mean, we see it a lot on social media today, but it was not standard then. And it was, I think, one of the things that was really special about it is that people who were often outsiders in their real-life community, they were geeky, sometimes had the greasy hair, sometimes had the bad skin, you know, teenagers who were often quite gifted, but who were sometimes not very well met in terms of their needs of being challenged by the school system. Also, they were non-conformist and willing to break rules, perhaps a sense of not as much to lose. And they found through this early internet people just like them. So they stopped being the one odd guy out at their high school or junior high school. And suddenly they became just like 20 other people who cared about things that they cared about and didn't think they were weird. But like all cliques, these bulletin boards had fringes 
and they had an inner sanctum. So you would have different layers and you would potentially have a first room or sort of anyone who had gotten the phone number of the BBS and maybe, you know, in some cases was asked to chip in 20 or 30 bucks for the year to the cost of running the phone lines would come in and people could chat with each other. It's fairly innocent. But then there were the back rooms, the back rooms, you know, the gambling rooms, the smoking rooms. And in these rooms, selected groups of people would trade in the currency of this new community, and that was information. And at the back of the back of the most exclusive rooms was a hacker collective known as The Realm. The Realm traded information between the hackers who were in it, but the hackers who were in it also traded and shared information with overseas hackers. Julian Assange is the most high-profile former member of the realm, but at the time, its best and brightest were two teenage boys with the handles Phoenix and Electron. So Phoenix is arrogant and clearly intelligent, but a braggart, pretty extroverted. He is very kind of cocky and sure and but also pushy in a way that advances their explorations. Electron is very wry, quietly spoken, holds things close to his chest, but very technically adept, very willing to tap, tap, tap until you actually get through to the other side. Already stars of the local hacking scene, Phoenix and Electron began working around the clock, trading information and techniques with the elite hackers of Europe and the US. There was definitely an attitude with the top hackers in other countries that the Australians were really serious players. If you said you were an Australian hacker, you got a bit of respect. And it was in part because of these guys. But it's when they get their hands on Zardoz that Phoenix and Electron really start making waves. Zardoz was a kind of a holy grail for the hackers. Nowadays, if you want to learn about a computer security hole, often you can just search on Google and find 25 articles or references to it. Back then, the system administrators, security administrators, networkers all had a closed mailing list. And although it was actually called at the time Security Digest, everyone just referred to it as Zardos. And it was actually, the name was taken from a science fiction cult film which had starred Sean Connery. Zardos! Zardos! Who came here in the stone head? I don't know. It is the only path and passage into the vortex. Zardos! Zardos was where they would share security holes that they found for networks, for systems. And this gives you access not just to one system, but to all the systems running that technology. It is a master key. And that's why the list was so valuable. It was basically a ring of master keys to all sorts of systems at all different levels of power access. With Zardos, not only can you get into a network, you can essentially take control of the network. That kind of power is immense and giddying. It was absolutely giddying to these, you know, late teens, early 20s, boys often, many of whom had never left Australia, had never owned a passport. (laughs) To have that kind of access is incredible. And, of course, being bored teenage boys trapped in the suburbs, egging each other on, they start using this power. 
They go on a rampage, breaking into high-profile network after high-profile network. They've been penetrating systems at Los Alamos, National Labs, Harvard University, Digital Equipment Corporation, Bell Systems, so the original telecom in the United States, Motorola Corporation, the Goddard Space Flight Center, University of Texas. You know, it's a long list of prestigious institutions. And they're not going for the small Fred's Backyard pool digging service. (laughs) They want to go for the big guys. There's a very typically Australian sense of anti-authoritarianism in what Phoenix and Electron are doing. It's a fuck you to the man delivered with a wink and a grin. One of, in my view, Australian culture's best attributes is not just a willingness to kick big institutions in the shin, whether it's government or departments or big corporations, but to ruthlessly and mercilessly make fun of them, ridicule them, to cut them down to size and reduce their power by humour that just really pillories them. And that is something that I think is very expressed in the very early underground. I mean, the WANK in Wankworm wasn't just a convenient acronym. It was cheeky, it was mischievous, and in a way, it had heart. If there was something darker going on, it was part of the boys themselves and what drove them on such an unrelenting campaign of network hacking. That actually goes to, in a sense... One of the themes of this early underground, which is kind of a degree of addiction that these guys had around breaking into systems one after the other, after the other, after the other. And there was no real endpoint. There was no objective other than the thrill of getting into a new system and seeing what might be there. But, you know, they said you would get in and, and then often it was like, oh, this thrill is over. I'm on to the next one. It was really just being hooked on the adrenaline of of breaking into something that you shouldn't be in that was verboten. All of this activity didn't go unnoticed. In March 1990, an article in the New York Times described how a hacker had coded some sort of worm that had been breaking into dozens of computer networks. Phoenix was amused, but also kind of outraged. This is no worm. Phoenix calls up the reporter of the New York Times and brags to him brags to him about the fact that, no, it's not a worm breaking into these machines. It's actually people. It's not a rogue program. It's people. And so that's where, in a sense, it starts to go particularly pear-shaped because Electron is horrified to know that Phoenix has done this. He's a low-key kind of a guy. He wants to stay a low-key kind of guy. And he wants to stay out of prison. And he's pretty addicted to hacking at this stage. You know, it for him is a real adrenaline rush that he needs almost physically. So he actually packs up his modem at that stage and gives it to his father and says, hide the modem from me so I can't log on. Hide the modem from me and then I will be saved. Unfortunately, Electron's addiction is so severe that he is successful in finding the modem. (laughs) It takes him, I think, a couple of days. And there it goes, plugged back into the wall, and, and he's off and running again. This was the beginning of the end for Phoenix and Electron. 
John Markov, the New York Times journalist, wrote an article based around his conversation with Phoenix and it made the front page. His original article, the article that Phoenix had reacted to, had been relatively buried on page 12. Phoenix is at this stage saying to Electron, well, do you think we can make the cover of Time or Newsweek? And Electron's kind of head slapping, going, really? What is this guy on about? The FBI is calling the AFP and saying, do something about these noisy hackers. And that's when it all begins to become unraveled. I think perhaps at that moment, if Electron had been able to break his addiction, and it really was a human addiction, Perhaps he could have walked away almost scot-free, but he couldn't. There were other hackers in that era who were connected with them, who were part of the Realm community, and they did. They did walk away. They didn't have the same level of addiction to the high of being in a system we weren't authorized to be in, of the thrill of getting in there, you know, late at night in a darkened lounge room. And they were able to escape unnoticed and unscathed. During his phone conversation with The Times journalist, Phoenix had owned up to being Australian, or at least his accent had given him away, which was bad news. If the Australian authorities had been turning a blind eye to the hackers beforehand, they could hardly ignore these reports of their exploits being splashed across the front page of one of the biggest newspapers in the world. Australian law enforcement had been under some pressure from the American law enforcement to do something about hackers who were coming from Australia on this early internet. Obviously, the people in the underground were pretty negative on the, on the AFP detectives. But what neither the hackers nor the AFP realised was that, actually, they were both underdogs. It's funny, the irony of this. Both the AFP and the early hacker community were in a sense, financially impoverished. They couldn't just go out and buy lots of equipment. They had to completely improvise. I know the AFP had to beg, borrow and steal equipment from financial institutions, from other organisations. Could we borrow this? Can we have your old gear that you're throwing out? I mean, they were all but dumpster diving themselves <laughs> and, and pleading, can we just have that for a month so they could experiment with it? The AFP established a computer crime unit to investigate the spate of hacking. But they also have to rethink the way they gather evidence. To prosecute computer crime, you've got to link what's happening on a phone line with what's going on in the real world and all in real time. And it was the AFP, the budget-strapped AFP, that led the world in developing this technology. So they actually developed this high-speed modem tapping capability, and it was a world first in a criminal investigation. Previously, with the high-speed modems, they hadn't been able to capture the data intercept. And then, using this invention, suddenly they could. I don't know that they would have been able to develop it if they had not had to have the same resourcefulness of tinkering, you know, first-hand tinkering with the equipment that, in fact, the hackers, their adversaries had had. Phoenix and Electron never saw it coming. In those final weeks, these hackers of their generation grossly underestimated just how close the police were getting. The AFP had tracked down the realm hackers and they were watching and ready to pounce and they needed to wait until they had gathered enough evidence and then get in and get them. And get them they did. 
Electron who's been hacking to late at night and he gets up to go use the loo, have a wee in the wee hours of the morning and the lights go out for reasons he couldn't figure out. And then all of a sudden, the police are bursting through his door or his window, coming into his room, you know, throwing him down on the floor. His father was, I think, completely surprised by the raid. I mean, he had some inkling that his son was up to a bit of mischief, but not the kind of mischief that would see a half a dozen police officers raining down on the house in the middle of the night, not like that. And it's funny because, I mean, some of the hackers thought that they would be mentally prepared and used to joke that they would be mentally prepared for when the cops came. But I think none of them were. None of them had any concept of what it would be really like to have their house stormed by police officers in a surprise raid in the middle of the night. On April 2nd, 1990, just eight months after Australia first connected to the internet, Phoenix and Electron were arrested in simultaneous pre-dawn raids. In court, Electron pleaded guilty and was given a suspended six-month jail sentence and 300 hours community service. Phoenix pleaded guilty, but only after striking a deal to reduce the number of charges against him and was given a 12-month suspended jail term and 500 hours community service. But for Electron, the withdrawal symptoms that hit after the AFP seized his computer gear were as bad, if not worse, than anything the courts could dish out. He couldn't afford to just go out and replace the confiscated equipment, and he felt the loss hard. He went through, I think, what you could call the kind of withdrawal that a drug addict or an alcoholic would go through. You know, profound sort of depression, a great sort of grieving sense of loss, a physical sense of something being wrenched from you that is a part of your being. And that was very hard. While Julian Assange graduated from the realm to create WikiLeaks and, for better or worse, come to dominate the international spotlight, both Phoenix and Electron retired from the world of hacking and effectively disappeared. It is interesting what these hackers have gone on to do with their lives. Almost to a person, they have gone on to live useful, productive lives in society. Often they've contributed to open source code. Most of them, to my knowledge, haven't gone back to hacking at all. They've moved on. A number of them have gone on to work in computer-related fields, not surprisingly, but they've given up their life of crime. Some of All Parts is produced by me, Joel Werner, Jonathan Webb is science editor, Sophie Townsend story editor, and sound designs by me and Mark Don. Professor Justin Zobel is head of the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Justin wrote a great article for The Conversation about the early days of the internet in Australia, and it was during a phone conversation with him about that article that I first heard the story of the wankworm. So thanks for the jaw-dropping lead, Justin. Dr. Sulet Dreyfus is a lecturer in the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. She's also author of the book Underground, Hacking Madness and Obsession on the Electronic Frontier. 
Underground tells the story of Phoenix and Electron, as well as many other hackers of the late 80s and early 90s. Julian Assange was a researcher on the book, and many of the hackers involved in the stories were primary sources. Now, has a number changed your life? If it has, I want to know. Email me soap at abc.net.au and tell me a story, and then maybe I'll tell it here with your help. But for now, that's it.